Hello and welcome to the Holiday Moons Podcast, where we share our love for the holidays with you year-round. I'm Randy, and I will continue the conversation about early vacations in the United States. In this time frame, it'll be the 1900s, 1900 through 1930-ish. This is Sydney, and I am going to be starting a summer series about unique tourist attractions across America. So those of you who are interested in cross-country family trips, you may be interested in some of these sites. Today I will specifically talk about the Winchester Mystery House. Ooh, very mysterious. I'm Cole and I'm going to be talking about uh, locations off the beaten path on a few of the major continents for the next few weeks. Not all the major continents? Well, not all the continents are major. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Hi, I'm Beth. I will be talking about lemonade and lemonade stands today. Mm. So very fun summer topics today. As always, we begin with our holiday happenings. One holiday happening that's fun for me is that today is Father's Day. Yay! Happy Happy Father's Father's Day. Day. Oh, thank you. I think you even noticed. Um, So we actually got to visit my dad and a number of my siblings and their families came out over the weekend. So that was a lot of fun to see them. Um, Some from Arizona, from Massachusetts, lots of different places all over. So that was fun. Uh, One of the things I talked, uh, we talked about our podcast with some of our family about what we do and how we do it. So that was interesting for us. As we were talking about holidays, one of the things my sister said was that she actually has started to decorate for the fall shortly after Independence Day. So she doesn't wait now until September like she used to. She actually just goes from patriotic, jumps right into the fall decorations because she loves them so much. And um, there's not a long period of time between the two. It's about two months worth of time. So mm-hmm. she just jumps to the one she loves. Well, and that's that's a, not an insignificant amount of time. It's <laughs> a, yeah, a sixth of a year. Just True. two months. Yeah. Just, yeah. Two, just months. two months. Just two months. <laughs> not like two weeks. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, that's okay because Becky loves decorating yeah. and she loves seasons. Yeah, and I love the fall too. I probably would not decorate that early, but in her defense, uh, she's from North North, so they have I think much more of a fall season. Right. Versus us, who's in Virginia, we came from Pencil- back from Pennsylvania, and the weather was so significant. Like, we went from crisp, you know, cool air in the morning to, like, 90 humidity. Yeah, going we down are. from Pennsylvania yeah. back yeah. down it was very sad. Virginia. Yeah. <laughs> and Becky's from Massachusetts, so she's even further north. Yeah, so you get that nice New England kind of fall. Exactly. I can see her wanting to start early. Yeah. And at my dad's house, my stepmom, Penny, loves to decorate every season. So it's always fun to go there because she had a ton of patriotic things up for the summer. She did. So it's easy to fun and easy to walk around. Pretty much every room's got different types of things, and she's always working on new things. So yeah. And she's cra- she's also likes crafts and making things, and right. she's very skilled. So mm-hmm. She's right. very crafty. <laughs> yeah. She and Becky both. Yes. <laughs> so call out. Shout out. Becky and Penny. Um, Okay, so we will begin with 
my topic, which is a continuation from a topic from before the Independence, the Independence Day podcast, which is a continuation of the vacations and how they started in the United States. So last time I talked about vacations that began after the Civil War in the beginning of the 20th century. This time it'll be from the 1900s up until the Great Depression in the 19, late 1920s, early 1930s. And as we did last time, I talked about the major events going on in the country, which directly impacted individuals' abilities and desires to take vacations and the locations where they took place. So again, like I did last time, I'm just going to run through major things going on from 1900 to about 1930, because as we talked about last time, the environment, the, the stability of What's going on in the local area, the nation, and the world affects people's interests and abilities to take vacations. In the 1900s, that's when gold was created as the standard for the United States, for a currency standard. In 1901, Theodore Roosevelt became president. In 1904 through 1914, the Panama Canal was built. In 1913, that's when the income tax, the federal income tax, uh, became a thing, and the Federal Reserve System began. Yay, federal income tax. <laughs> in 1914, that's when World War I began. And in 15, the Lusitania sunk and the U.S. intervened at that point. In 1917, the U.S. entered World War I and the Russian Revolution began. In 1918, World War I ends and the Treaty of Versailles takes place. In 1919, that's when prohibition against alcoholic beverages begins and the Red Scare begins in the United States. In 1920, that's when women get the right to vote and the first radio station comes into existence. In 1927, Lindbergh crosses the Atlantic. In 1929, the stock market crashes and the Great Depression begins. 1932, Franklin Roosevelt is elected. 1933 is the bank holiday, the 100 days, and also when the 21st Amendment repealed prohibition. And same year Hitler comes to power. So what are some of the thoughts of those that of those major events during that time period? Well that last one kind of sucked. <laughs> yeah, yeah it really. Did. Yes. Lots of turmoil, lots of change. So that concept of vacations didn't progress as much during that time. Yeah, that makes sense. But the war with Right, you're going right out of uh, war into economic crisis like you said. There's the red scare, so people are probably not wanting to go to Europe at least for vacations as much. Right. So the interesting thing about that period is not so much the change in vacations, but some of the preparation that happens during that time that post-Depression, post-World War II are critical to how vacations change in the United States starting in the late 1940s and then through the 1950s. So what I'm going to talk about today is some of those things that happened that um, prepared the nation for the big change in vacationing that happened post-World War II. So the first one is on um, regarding travel and transportation. So as we talked about before, uh, prior to the 1920s, there weren't that many people that could afford to travel around the world or even take um, vacations uh, per se unless they weren't too far away. But with the increase in wages during that period of time, as you enter into the 1920s, the Americans, for the first time, had the time and money to travel. And with the mass production methods, which made automobiles affordable for the masses, by 1921, the number of automobiles had passed the 10 million mark. 
So you went quickly from oh. zero to past 10 million. And the president at the time, Warren G. Hardings, was spending $75 million a year to improve the nation's roads. So more and more Americans chose the low cost, high freedom option of traveling by automobile while vacationing rather than by horse and buggy like they had. So vacationing to distant sunny destinations like California became more and more possible. So also during this period of time, a network of small railways crisscrossed America, providing relatively low-cost transportation for both freight and passengers. And in the 1920s, trains and ocean liners became more dominant in the mass transportation um, across America. So trains and ships actually opened up the ability to, um, to move across the continent. So then the last piece is uh, air travel. So though it was still in its infancy, it captured America's imagination during the 1920s, and it held great promise in speeding communication and commerce throughout the continents and overseas. At the time, airplanes were mainly used in peacetime for mail delivery, but started to be used for passenger transport as planes became larger and more reliable toward the end of the decade. And even later in the 1920s, Airship technology like Zeppelins. I was actually about to ask became about that more if, available. Yeah, if they were common in the United States, because you always hear about them in like Germany and Austria during that period. Yeah, so basically from 1929 until 1937, more and more companies were using airships to carry large amounts of freight and passengers in comfort. But then in 1937, something bad happened. <laughs> right, something pretty bad. <laughs> Lightning hit the Hindenburg. And that major catastrophe kind of negated the whole concept of continued airships. Right. So if the listener doesn't know what the Hindenburg is, are you able to briefly explain that? So the Hindenburg was uh, basically a Zeppelin. So it was an air passenger service using large dirigibles, giant airships, that carried you know, anywhere from 20 to 100 people. But basically it carried them a little bit on the pricey side at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it carried them above ground. These Zeppelins, these large airships, used hydrogen as the mechanism to fill the airship to make it float. You think about hot air balloons and things like that that make them float. Well, back then, hydrogen was a cheap, easy gas to use. The problem with hydrogen is it's highly flammable. <laughs> so when the lightning struck the Zeppelin the, um, and caused a fire, the fire sparked through the hydrogen and basically the whole thing went up in flames and it actually was they were live reporting this because back then as i mentioned earlier radio the radio stations were available right so they actually well and the hindenburg was uh was a big deal too right. so they were right um so i, I believe there's some camera footage of, of it going yep. down too because there's audio were, yeah. and camera footage of it yeah horrible disaster and that kind of nixed the airships um of course now we have other ways that to make ships fly, but um, that was kind of the end of that piece of it. So that was major things going on in the transportation, the beginning of airplane usage for passengers, car travel, um, expanding greatly, um, as well as some of the other things I talked about. So the second thing was the uh, usage of automobiles and Route 66. So cars transformed the nation and the world. It allowed people to move more freely. It simplified the way people could move about. Turning the key in the ignition of a car was much easier than saddling a horse. So it completely modified family life, right? Jobs, horizons, people could travel further, quicker, and in a more flexible way. It was more adaptable than taking a train because you can go to different locations. You didn't have to take one path. Hotels and motels and restaurants became 
uh, convenient. It spanned all walks of life. Anyone could own a car. So although the automobiles were around since the late 1800s, the automobile experienced a boom in the early 1920s, passing from 180,000 registered vehicles to the 17 million mark in the 1920s. So obviously there was an increased demand for better road. And that comes through the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1921. So one of the things that the government recognized was with the advent of the automobile and the desire for people and businesses to get around more freely, they needed to invest more money in the highway system across the United States. Before this act was passed in 1916, uh, the country had about 2.5 million miles of roads, of which 10.5% were surfaced, but only 1.29% were paved. Wow. As the automobile became more popular, the masses took to the roads, and what was once an adventure for the wealthy became commonplace. So you see pictures of road systems back then, basically, that were dirt and mud, Uh, So even though they were called a road and had a route system as laid out in that Federal Aid Road Act, they really weren't anything more than what they were before. They just had a name now. Now they just had automobiles on them rather than... They were paths. They were basically paths, right, that had a a route number associated with it. So then later in the 1920s, the United States began to realize they couldn't leave it just up to the states to continue this road improvement project. It really was a national issue that we had to address. And they became more and more insistent on paving of roads and connecting the road systems together. Because when Route 66 and the concept of Route 66 came to be, um, and they picked all the ways they wanted to go from the East Coast to the West Coast, they basically just renamed some roads to the route numbers to match Route 66 along the way. That was the second important piece I wanted to talk about during this time frame in preparing for the post-World War II changes. The third and final piece for this segment is some specific areas that started to grow based on local tourism. Those are areas like Atlantic City. So Atlantic City had connected to a railroad terminal and tourism took off because of its location on the coast. At first, again, it was the wealthy as more and more people started to gain more money to spend. Places like the boardwalks uh, grew up, um, the beaches became more popular, and gambling became more popular along the way. Another place, uh, other places like Newport, Rhode Island, which had some history as well, there um, started to build cottages and hotels along the beach. So beaches weren't too far away from the East Coast people, so and West Coast people, so those kind of hub areas started to grow and grow as well. Um, and became more of a focus for that local climate, and that would expand later after World War II. And then national parks became, as I talked about last week with the Adirondacks, places like Yellowstone National Park and parks out west became more accessible because of the railroad system. Mm. So more hoteling and paving happened around those areas to, again, allow access along the way. And the final thing I'd say is pre-World War II, that's when places like the Coney Island and amusement parks along the boardwalks started to sprout up. And it's interesting, there's a connection between um, the circuses and those kind of places. So that kind of concept of entertaining the family in some way became stationary in places like Coney Island. And Coney Island actually has an interesting history of multiple of these amusement parks and eventually Coney Island won. 
these other ones kind of fell to the wayside. But when you look at what did they have in the early years of Coney Island, it was a lot of these kind of weird acts like the bearded woman, the strongest man, uh, all those kind of things that you could go nice. see. And they were individually owned and operated. And then somebody came in and said, well, why don't I, why don't I own all this amusement, all of these amusements in one area, and I'll charge a single price coming in. So that actually happened in the early 1900s, where that kind of concept of a business um, with multiple type of attractions happening. So, Was it called The Greatest Showman? No, it was no. not called okay. The Greatest Showman. Uh, but a lot of those pieces were um, important changes that were happening over time um, that led up to the explosion of vacations later on in history that we'll talk about in weeks to come. Very fun. Well, thank you for that piece of history, Dad. And speaking of vacations, my topic was inspired by Disney's television series called Gravity Falls. I always forget that it was a Disney series. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And such it, a fun, such a fun show. It is. If you don't know what it is, look it up. It's a kids. It's technically classified as a kids cartoon show, but it is very clever. The plot is great. The characters are great. But um, a part, I think, like one episode has these kids and their great uncle going to various tourists. They call them like tourist traps. Right. (laughs) Where it's basically like world's biggest ball of yarn. Right. And things like just just tacky little things like that. Upside down house. Upside down house. Or just unique um, tourist locations to visit along one path, a, a tour, some kind of speak. route. Yeah, exactly. Right. Which is which is kind of based on Route sixty six, right? And these kind of roadside attractions that people could stop at along the way from one side of the country to the other, right? With entry fees, just to look at the entire thing right. and and all that good stuff. So I'm not going to talk about a specific route necessarily, but I will be talking about different specific unique tourist locations that you can go and visit if you're on a vacation or just happen to be nearby and hey you know didn't realize this was by my house (laughs) and as a kid growing up in the 70s i stopped at many of these locations right as a family when we were vacationing we were going to relatives house we would stop at uh, Big John, where the um, uh, mine accident happened, and he held up the mine for the people that got saved. Mm-hmm. We stopped at the um, place where the gravity doesn't work the same in West Virginia, where you know the houses are. You know, there's like these optical illusions that happen in these houses, and we stopped at so many of these like kind of little places mm-hmm. along the way from one family to another, or along the way from home to some end vacation destination. So it's fun to hear about these again. Absolutely. So it brings a sense of nostalgia Mm -hmm. as well as I think it definitely adds to the the legends and the culture um, of Americans. You know, what we hear as, as kids and grow up and tell our own kids, right? So there are many, many different types of unique places tourist places to stop so I, I just went online and researched a whole bunch and i randomly picked something and it, it's fascinating so let me let me tell you all about this um it's called the winchester mystery house okay and it is a mansion in san jose california 
and it was once the personal residence of Sarah Winchester. So the Winchester Mystery House, according to their website, because they, of course they have a website, right? Uh, the WinchesterMysteryHouse.com is an architectural wonder and historic landmark in San Jose, California. The once the personal residence of Sarah Winchester, who was the widow of William Wirt Winchester, and she was the heiress to a large portion of the Winchester Repeating Arms fortune. So the Winchester rifle just because I, I didn't have any knowledge of this, is basically describing a series of lever-action-repeating rifles manufactured by the Winchester Repeating Arms Company. Developed from the 1860 Henry rifle, the Winchester rifles were among the earliest repeaters. It was marketed as the gun that won the West. Right, so he basically built a gun knowing that its primary purpose was to kill people, mm-hmm. right? So he built a gun that could do that efficiently, cheaply, and effectively. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And so it sold very well. Right, and as a result, he made his family made a lot of money, mm-hmm. but they had a lot of regret about it. Right, which right. is what so, drove her to her next actions. Um, so any of those old cowboy movies that you see, all those, well, or most of those rifles that you're going to see are going to be the Winchester repeating rifles. That's right. Right. So, unfortunately, um, tragedy befell Sarah. Her um, daughter died shortly after she was born of an illness. And a few years later, her husband was taken. Shortly after her husband's death, um, there are various... People that say one thing and others that yeah, say a lot another. Of theories. Yeah, there are a lot of theories, but um, basically, like one of them is that she went to a medium who channeled her husband, and the medium said, "Okay, well, um, go out to California and build a house." And this is where the mystery house has a very unique twist to it. Some theories say that. She went to a medium shortly after her husband's death. The medium channeled her husband and said, okay, go to California and build a home for the ghosts that were killed by the Winchester rifles. Killed at the big, big house. Yes. A lot died. Yes. So she, she went over and found this farmhouse and started all this construction on it. Okay, so the construction started in 1884. And many claim that the property and mansion were haunted by the ghosts uh, because no one really understood why she was con- building, why all this construction. And it it's very interesting to go through and see what she did because obviously she really didn't have any idea. Like, I think she felt, she felt that if she stopped construction that the ghosts would finally catch up to her and kill her. That's what I recall hearing as well. Right. Now, some theories say that this she, there was a pause in construction and such because she couldn't stand it at different points and she, she needed a break. And then, But she started up again? Exactly. So, have you been to this house, Dad? Is that why you know things? So, I know a lot because I've been near this house a lot. So, one of the places where I used to work, one of the place, the people, the group, companies that we worked with, was right next to there, so my hotel was right next to it. Oh, that's funny. So we, I got to talk to a lot of people that visited that place and find mm-hmm. out more about it. Were there and any- some of our people that went did go. I never went, though. Were there any mediums that you talked to? No, I didn't. Yeah. So actually, I take that back. It, um, the WinchesterMysteryHouse.com says it was from 1886, not 1884. 
1922, construction seemingly never ceased. There was, which originally bought the farmhouse, it was originally eight rooms, and it grew, and grew, um, the house itself right now uh, has 24,000 square feet, 10,000 windows, 2,000 doors, 160 rooms, 52 skylights, 47 stairways and fireplaces, 17 chimneys, 13 bathrooms, 6 kitchens, uh, built at a price tag of the $5 million in 1923 or $71 million today. I don't know why, but just the 2,000 doors is like blowing my mind. Like Sarah Winchester inherited more than $20.5 million dollars. She also received nearly 50% ownership of the Winchester Repeating Arms Company, giving her an income of roughly $1,000 per day, equivalent to $26,000 a day in 2018. So she had a ton of money and lots of time. And it was a little bit crazy. (laughs) Very unfortunate things befell her, and um, yes, she decided to go this route. So she didn't use an architect. Okay, so so there was no real plan for this building. And she added on to this building in a very haphazard way. So doors and stairs, some doors and stairs went to nowhere. Windows overlooked other rooms and stairs had some odd-sized risers as well. This kind of drew many to believe that she was haunted by ghosts. Again, like, if any ever caught her, that she would die. So some rooms had secret passageways that she could get into. Some theories say that she lived in different rooms and would basically go room to room through secret passageways or different doors. Again, because she thought she was being followed or chased or pursued in some way. Right. So another weird thing was that the house was predominantly made of redwood. Because she liked the wood, but she didn't like the look of the wood. So, so mom's giving a weird expression right now. Okay. But she disliked the look of the wood, so she demanded that um, a stain be applied or paint. So, approximately 20,500 U.S. gallons of paint were required to paint the house. Which is just fascinating. What did she paint it? I... Whatever she wanted. Indoor yeah. and outdoor. Yeah. And some people love the redwood natural look. But right. Well, she just wanted ones. to paint it over. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's very interesting that she demanded that it be made of this wood, but not. But she didn't like the look of it. Exactly. So yeah. I just, I didn't understand that. But anyways, um, the home itself, it was built using a floating foundation, which had, which saved it from collapsing a 1906 earthquake. And this type of construction allowed the home to shift freely. So I think it was originally like six to seven stories high, but then um, some of the stories like just couldn't be repaired. So then that those were knocked down, and it's now I think like four stories high. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's just a fascinating house. If you have a chance, you know, go ahead and go see it. Um, some of the technology was ahead of its time, so it did have indoor plumbing. Hot air running through. Right. Well, if you have the um, money for it, right? Exactly. Right. And I mean, thirteen. Bathrooms. I'd be interested to know if, like, the entire house has indoor plumbing and it did indoor heating. So it all did. So she kept adding it, like, as she was going on along. Yeah. 
Yeah, That's so it was just it's very fascinating. Um, so yeah, d- go ahead and check it out. So another interesting thing as well, I think they have ghost tours. They have all kinds of tours. They do have ghost tours. Yeah. Oh, okay. So did you go on a ghost tour? No, but I've heard that they have ghost tours, and they they tell you that you might encounter a ghost during the tour. Oh. So I've listened to audio um, podcasts of people on the tour walking through waiting and their kind of viewpoint of both during and after of mm-hmm. what they encountered along the way so that was kind of fun yeah definitely is that on youtube or like where did you listen the to the podcast i imagine that you can find things on youtube though it was an yeah it was i got through itunes okay. along the way but they also say that that mansion the winchester mansion was the inspiration for the one part of the haunted mansion where the stairs are upside down, they go to nowhere, they end at doors, and you see those feet walking in different directions. So wow. they believe that that, which was first in Disneyland and now in, in Disney World at Magic Kingdom's Haunted Mansion, uh, was the inspiration for that. That is so cool. That's really cool. Yeah, and one last thing. They even have a movie about this mansion. It's called the the Winchester... Well, it's this one says the Winchester Movie... Where it actually shows, I think they filmed different parts of it at the actual mansion. And it's all about Sarah. And of course, it's a, it's a horror movie, so spoilers. It shows the house being haunted. And it doesn't end up well? Um, not exactly, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> or Sarah. So um, I was hoping it was a documentary. I'm like, oh, I'll go, this, I'll go watch that. And then you said horror f- film. It's like, nah, I know, I'm right? Not watch that. But even if you watch the trailer, just watching how these these windows looking into other rooms and high the high risers and all this like really unique, almost like Doctor Seuss kind of yeah. like yeah. house. Well, it's just very. It's a recent movie too. Yeah. It's uh, 2018. Oh, wow. True. Okay. Yes. So. Yeah. And when you said earlier she did not have an architect, there was no plan. So right. she basically told the builders what to do. Mm-hmm. So if she said, I want that staircase going up to there and put a door there, right. they would say, well, there's nothing behind that. She, she would just say, yeah, do it. Just put. And eventually they just got used to this whole concept of just do what she says. Yeah. Because they're getting paid one way or the other. Right. Right. So. so so I was reading that sometimes doors would open onto walls yep. or open onto like nothing at all. Right. And stairways would lead to nothing. And it was just really unique. Yeah. And mysterious. So Unique crazy person house. <laughs> yep. So go feel free to check it out. Dad, Dad's been there. Um, well, I've been no. near there. But I know uh, yeah, a number of people that went. And they, it is, you know, you can spend a few hours if it, you're on the way somewhere else. Right. It's a fun thing to do. Exactly. Yep. It's a huge house. It's a ginormous house. A mansion, I guess they call it, right? Yeah. Right. The Mystery Mansion, right? Winchester Mystery Mansion? Yeah. No, it, well, it says here, Winchester Mystery House. Mystery House. Awesome. Awesome, awesome. So moving a little bit away from the U.S., uh, I was actually interested in talking about some international locations that were kind of off the beaten path. So... Not the locations that you would normally think of. Um, like, when you guys think of a European vacation, like going there during the summer, maybe for a beach trip, what kind of what kind of places do you think of? Well, I wasn't thinking beach, but I thought like Paris would be a fun place to visit. Mm-hmm. Italy, Greece. Right. Euro Disney. Euro Disney. Paris Disney. Yeah. 
the French Riviera, which is beach. The Alps would be pretty mm-hmm. in summertime. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people think of, well, for the beach especially, you think of things like Barcelona, mm. uh, southern France, Italy, Greece, that kind of thing. But they're big, really big tourist places. There's pretty much no way that you can avoid big crowds of people there. So I wanted to look up where Europeans go for beach vacations. And I found that a lot of Europeans will actually go to the Black Sea and Bulgaria there, which you, I guess, wouldn't normally think of if somebody said, I went to a European beach trip. Right. Black Sea wouldn't jump into your head. Right. Or Bulgaria wouldn't jump into your head. Correct. Yes. (laughs) I think I recall from my time working with the Russians on the space station that they liked to go to the Black Sea. Right. Right. For the Russians... um, I imagine a lot of them went to, like, the Crimea. I don't remember that. I do remember the Black Sea, though, as a, mm-hmm. seemingly like a, a spot to go. I don't know if there's a bunch of resorts there. or Yeah, so, especially in the last decade, Bulgaria has been developing a lot along the Black Sea coast. They have a ton of resorts there, a ton of beaches, uh, and some really interesting things to check out. So, for those of you who don't know maybe where Bulgaria is, it's in the Balkan Peninsula. It's right at the border of Turkey, Romania, and Greece. It's a part of the European Union. So one of the great things about being able to stay in Bulgaria is not only do you have access to the beaches there, but you can easily go up into Romania if you want to check out. Um, if you're a fan of sort of the, the Transylvanian... Right, of Vlad. Of Vlad. <laughs> if you're a fan of Vlad the Impaler. Right. <laughs> you can go up into the Carpathian Mountains if you want to. Or you can drive south, and you can check out Greece if you want to. You guys had a very good time in Greece. We did, yes. We went to a lot of tourist places, but it was beautiful. It was incredible. Bulgaria stands at an interesting crossroads between east and west. And it's funny because I was listening to a... I found the travel guide for Bulgaria. I think it's maybe a little older, but the, the guy who was describing everything was funny. He had... There's sort of one of those, you know, documentary voices <laughs> who's saying, Bulgaria stands at the border of the Occident and the Orient. <laughs> of the what? Of the Occident and the Orient. It's <laughs> one of those bo- uh, voices. But Bulgaria is interesting because it has a, a history that goes back uh, to the same era as the Greeks. The, the Thracians settled in Bulgaria. So you have the Thracians, the Byzantines, the Turks. Then you have the Warsaw Pact era of Bulgaria. So you have a very interesting mix of cultures and periods that you can see. Even as you're just walking through any of these cities, you can see uh, sort of Soviet-inspired buildings next to Thracian buildings, cathedrals. Oh, that sounds interesting. All kinds of uh, all kinds of stuff. The architecture is is beautiful. It's very a lot of it is very almost Greek looking, but with a different color pattern. Very Balkan. Uh, it has it maintains a very mystical element to it. As far as how it looks, you mean? as far as how it looks and how everything sort of feels, because it doesn't feel Bulgaria is a very sparsely populated country, so it doesn't feel packed like any of the Western European tourist locations, but. When you get to the coast, they have these huge, elaborate resorts that are very much modern and look amazing. They have 
famous a famous dolphinarium that you can go to, uh, beaches, and a lot of interesting inland locations that you can go and check out as well. Can I ask what a dolphinarium is? <laughs> it's an aquarium that is houses mainly dolphins. dolphins. Only dolphins. So it's uh, what it, essentially a dolphinarium is is a is a large. Think of it as like a large dolphin show, but an entire like building area set up just for this this thing. So it's a huge. It said it's the biggest dolphinarium in Europe. I don't know what the comparison <laughs> is there. How, how, many, many, how common dolphinariums are in Europe? Are they? Is it in the Black Sea? It's in that area, right? But I mean, do the dolphins go in the black? Are there dolphins in the Black Sea? I don't know if there are dolphins in the Black Sea. <laughs> it just seems odd to me. Okay, it's in one of the uh, one of the biggest tourist cities in Bulgaria along the Black Sea, Varna. You look at dolphin looking aquariums up. or whatever. I don't know, just see if they're native. Oh. Yeah, they are. Bottlenose dolphin is the most common species of dolphin in the Black Sea. There you go. Awesome. So dolphins are native to the Black Sea. Right. I was not sure about that. Yep. Um, so you can just go fish some dolphins right out of the Black Sea? <laughs> you can go scoop them out through your dolphin area. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> but like Scotland that we went to and you could see towers and castles just passing by down the road it's a lot of it a lot of that's the same way with bulgaria there's cathedrals there's castles there's towers there's fortresses everywhere uh the ottomans built all kinds of forts the bulgarians built all kinds of forts so as you're driving down the road there's all kinds of cool things that you can stop at i almost wish this was a a visual Podcast because you really have to go and look it up to see just how beautiful these landscapes are. Because a lot of it is uh, sweeping hills and valleys. Bulgaria is very, very famous for its roses. They have the Valley of the Roses. Um, they're the largest exporter of rose oil in the world. And they have all of these festivals that, that celebrate roses. They have their famous rose festival and a number of other ones. Definitely an amazing time. That's a big tourist big tourist trap, but uh, definitely a cool time of year to go. And but What's what a th- cool time of year to go? The, during, during the rose, rose, rose festival. festival. When okay. they're... I was going to say when they're ripe. When they're, when they're <laughs> the blooming. Blooming, when they're the blooming. blooming roses. <laughs> the blooming roses. <laughs> Go see those blooming roses. <laughs> Sounds like an explosive. <laughs> uh, but one of the coolest things about Bulgaria is that it is so cheap to go to. Hmm. It's nice. very inexpensive. You can go to a lot of uh, very old historical towns. A lot of the towns are sort of untouched from the, the Byzantine or medieval era from... Um, so there's a lot of really cool places to go and check out for very cheap. I think I went on to Airbnb and I found a terraced apartment overlooking just this entire town. Um, and I think it was something like you spend five hundred dollars and you could stay there for a month. Good grief, that is it. That is cheap. Yep. So very inexpensive. A lot of it's where a lot of Europeans go. They have they have white beaches. They have their resorts. They have uh, golfing. You know, whatever you can think of, it's just a really cool place to... Dolphinarium. To, dolphinarium. It's a really <laughs> cool place to check out. It sounds really cool. I wonder why more U.S. Uh, tourists don't know about it. Like, don't go there as much. Right. Well, because in the U.S., um, I think a lot of what we hear about is is places like Barcelona, 
South France, mm. Italy, that kind of thing. Because it really is located in a interesting spot next to Romania, which has a lot of history to it. Right. And Greece. And as I was looking it up more, I was thinking, well, this is sad because now I want to go there. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's the yeah. cool thing is that it's all in the European Union, so you can go to Romania easily. You can check out all that stuff. You can make you know a day, a couple days of that. You could go down to Greece. You could you know check that out. And if you get you know. Passport, all that stuff. You could go into Turkey if you wanted. You could go into Istanbul, check all that stuff out. So it really is in an interesting crossroads of southern, eastern, northern Europe. Mm-hmm. That you can go and you can check out all those things. Oh, that's interesting. Yep. So that's uh, that's our first stop on my uh, off the beaten path series for Europe. I'm going to be talking about a couple other fun locations on other continents over the next few weeks. Can't wait to Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I can talk about the the research facilities in Antarctica. So, do you know if they like lemonade in Bulgaria? I heard that lemonade is huge in Bulgaria. <laughs> did you really? Yeah. Where did you just make that up? The Dolphinarium sells the best <laughs> lemonade. Well, let me look up. Do they like lemonade <laughs> in Bulgaria? In Bulgaria, I'm going to look up. Do they sell lemonade at the world's largest Dolphinarium? <laughs> I wonder if they have... Is it of the... Okay, well, it says, Hey, Brits, don't taste the lemonade in Bulgaria, so... (laughs) (laughs) What? I was going to say, they have lemon trees in Bulgaria? All right. Wait, mine says to say that's the first thing that come up. Hey, Brits, when you come to Bulgaria, don't order lemonade. Does it say why? They say it's simply soda water, yellow-colored, with sugar and some citric acid. Interesting. It's so funny that that's what we happen to connect the two. And it's yep. like, don't drink the lemonade. So tell us about the non-Bulgarian lemonade. lemonade. You're right. Lemons and sugarcane are native to India. The first lemonade specifically is dated somewhere between 500 and 1000 AD in Egypt. Yeah, that was one of the things that was interesting. Because um, I heard that lemonade is way older than I thought it was. Like compared is. to other drinks it is. that we drink today. Yeah, so lemonade is a lot older. It's interesting because lemons originated in Asia, which includes India, northern Burma, and China, and they made their way to the Mediterranean coast in Egypt. Oh, that's interesting. So they made it, like, through trade? <laughs> they did what? <laughs> Are you suggesting that lemons migrate? <laughs> I think she's suggesting that <sighs> birds carried them. <laughs> Are you suggesting a five-ounce bird? <laughs> right, that's, a, that's a little Monty Python joke for you if the, the listener doesn't know where we're going with that. I'm not cutting that out because that's golden. All right. Like lemons. So, Mongols, it is believed... <laughs> now, you started with Mongols? <laughs> Mo- I, Mongols or Mongols? Nothing to <laughs> around. Mongolia is just north of China, right? Yeah. All right, so Mongolia, which is just north of China, also has a history of lemonade. It is said that it is an alcoholic version of lemonade, but also... That's interesting. So that's kind of like how cider in the U.S. started as an alcoholic beverage. Right. But, yeah. So you're suggesting that lemons... Native to Central Asia and India, None. migrated to the to Egypt, and then hitched a camel ride 
up to Mongolia <laughs> no, with Marco Polo. No, I'm not thinking that at all. No. So, where they then had too many margaritas. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Where they fermented in the sun along the way. Oh, that's right. right. So, in Egypt, it was a drink made with lemons, dates, and honey, and water that were enjoyed by peasants. And bottles of lemon juice with sugar, known as... And I'm trying to see how to say this, because it, the word just keeps coming up over and over and over again. It's Katarmizat, Q-A-T-A-R-M-I-Z-A-T. Katar... Katarmizat. 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 So it's interesting, because you said this is between 500 and 1000 AD. Yeah, there's a discrepancy as to which, which right. it is. But... I think a lot of people, when they think of Egypt, they're going to automatically think of ancient ancient Egypt. So this would have been under, probably under the caliphate. So this would have been Islamic Egypt. This word, this katarmazat, has come up all over the places I've been researching the lemonade. So it's it seems to be pretty universal that it's Egypt, katarmazat, and somewhere so between 500 and 1,000. what is most things, most lemonade is lemon juice, water, and sugar. Right. This one, instead of sugar, it looks like it was made with honey. So, Katamazot is the, the drink. Is the, the name of the drink. It is the name, of, the name of, the of the drink. Okay, so it's not like the Egyptian a city drink. or something like that. It is the name of the Egyptian drink. Okay, cool. Lemonade, what we call lemonade. I'm going to tell you a couple interesting pieces of history about lemonade and lemonade stands. Do it. In the U.S., so in we're going to go from way back to where it started. We're going to jump right into the U.S. So in this is very interesting. In July of 1941, a young woman opened up a lemonade stand in Illinois. <laughs> the little girl, as newspaper accounts later described her, gave her friends and passing strangers refreshing glasses of lemonade in a makeshift stand just outside her home. She sometimes sampled her own supply. Within weeks, the county's health department was knocking at her door. This is 1941, remember, right? They asked questions about the chain of lemonade custody and her sanitary practices. Right. So the chain of custody would be who is handling the raw materials? Where did they come from? Who were handling them? Did they follow the sanitary practices of the country? Or what were their sanitary practices? Because this was 1941. So it turns out that the budding entrepreneur had failed to rinse the glasses she gave to her customers after they'd been used. Yeah. <laughs> I know. As a result, she had contracted polio. <gasps> oh, no. And so did four of her friends. Oh, no. Yep. According to the Associated Press, the outbreak of the disease was no less than the hottest trail of the deadly disease virus in the history of epidemiology. Wow. I know. Well, that took a dark turn. <laughs> it did. Yeah. It was like this cute story, and then... It really wasn't. Yeah, it was kind of gross. No, I mean, not, yeah, well. That's and, horrible. Yeah. Right. But when we think about lemonade stands, they, they're kind of a symbol of kids' capitalism, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, that's what we think of. That's why when you said it t- took a dark turn, yeah. we think lemonade stands, we think of, you know, kids outside. Well, that's something that's like cups. quintessentially American. It yeah. is. Baseball lemonade stands. Yeah. And you give strangers you they give you a quarter you get a glass of lemonade but if they give it to you in a glass yeah don't drink it we don't <laughs> yeah. know if that little girl has rinsed out her cups but so, it's did, in, so it's interesting that concept that the lemonade was really old because that means it was around like through the middle ages through the reformation through yeah. the expiration right. years do through, you do you know how it 
like briefly how it came to the U.S. Was it a British well, thing? Well, they were they traded in India a lot, right? So I right, they traded. Well, and they also lemons came lemons came over. They helped um, keep scurvy away from the sailors, so they would bring lemons. Oh, that over. makes sense. Yeah, when um, I wondered because. Uh, Britain occupied Egypt for a while, too. As well. Right? Yeah. So I'm kind of jumping around here, uh, and I apologize for that, but... Don't. <laughs> but the lemons, as I was saying a little earlier, they came over, and they were a good source of vitamin C to help keep scurvy away. They actually also went out into the um, the gold rush. When the gold rush was going out west, mm-hmm. they went there, too. So lemonade... And lemons were a big part of... So the lemons wanted gold. <laughs> yeah, lemons that's why were they, gold. That's why they went out there. <laughs> to keep... But, scr- but again, to give vitamin C to the travelers. Right. Because, well, because the malnourished miners needed something oh, with vitamin okay. C in it. So that, that was... Not, during, that not that. just during the trip out, but you're saying they were actually shipped to the... Um, gold mines right. to those towns right. for and not shipped like hmm. we think of being shipped. Not like oh, there's a bunch of lemons. They're there's, they're going to be limited. So one of the um, another thing that kind of the dark history of the lemonade stand is when there were peddlers in New York as, as immigrants were coming through as immigrants were coming through Ellis Island, the peddlers were going were offering up lemonade for a price, but instead of actual lemonade, and this is really gross, so be warned. Be warned. They filled dirty wooden buckets or tin pails with a murky substance consisting of water, molasses, and vinegar, and the muck was topped with sliced lemon rinds to give it the appearance of something ingestible. So for many people looking for a fresh start in America, their first taste of freedom may have literally been a fetid concoction of cheap sugar water. Oh, that's I know. disgusting. Why are you finding like the worst stories about lemonade? Lemonade is such a fun thing. I what? know, right? I'm trying to make it yeah, not fun Okay, for us. so that was like in the 1860s. So by the 1880s, vendors were a common sight throughout New York City. Soda fountains and bars often found themselves being outmatched by lemonade stands real lemonade stands with real lemonade mm. that had relatively little overhead and could charge just five cents a glass instead of the 15 cents charged by the shops. So this cheap lemonade business had come very much to the forefront of New York City within... 20 years or so. Right, exactly. While many of the vendors were adults, the barrier to entry was low enough to entice business minds of all ages. Enter the capitalism of the United States. Which is awesome. Woo. Capitalism. I know. In, in the 1870s, now we're going back 10 years, a Dutch immigrant named Edward Bach. And this, this I had a thing that said, who may have seen and be re- been repulsed by what he was offered coming through, <laughs> <laughs> through the country. Now we're going to get back to the good stuff. He noticed that horses, that horses and carriages passing by his home and heading toward Coney Island, which Randy just talked about, often stopped so that the horses could have water and passengers could get a drink at a nearby cigar shop. Bach found it was curious that only the men would go inside the shop, leaving the women and children to wait until they arrived at their destination to get a beverage, which is also interesting, I know. (laughs) Sensing an opportunity, Bach bought a clean pail and attached three hooks to it to hold three glasses. When the horse car stopped, he jumped on and offered ice water to everyone on board at a penny a glass. He just 
jumped onto the wagon with them. Yeah. So the women and children, the men were all getting beverages in a cigar shop, and the women and children were just sitting there. So, but eventually, others caught on to what he was doing and mimicked him. So his business was going... Oh, good. Mimic him. I thought you were going to go dark again. You were going to, like, no. like, they hung him or something. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> he mimicked him, so, so his... Um, so he was having a lot of competition. Mm. So he began squeezing lemons into the water and adding sugar and sold the tastier drink for three cents a glass. So he tripled his... his Profits? Yeah, he tripled his profits. Thank you, Randy. So Bach actually became famous in the Ladies' Home Journal because of his celebrity status. Bach was one of the most influential lemonade sellers in America at the time. Oh, which is interesting, given how very specific his location was. Like, he had one location, and he was dealing with one set of customers. Was he famous? Like, did the headlines say, uh, Dutchman accosts wagon goers <laughs> with water? <laughs> Local man. <laughs> no, he had an authorized biography in wow. 1921. Oh, wow. uh, and the story of his childhood lemonade business struck a chord. But he never, like, created a... Like a company or anything out of it. He wasn't like no. the he was just, Rockefeller of lemonade. Right, he was just no. selling locally. Interestingly, his book won a Pulitzer Prize. Wow, that's wow. amazing. Isn't that incredible? I guess people were really into lemonade. Right. Or they loved Dutchman. That's right, either way. So this is just some, some history in the United States. There, There's actually a lot of history overseas that's interesting. In France, they had lemonade sellers... They had lemonade in tanks on their backs, kind of like a backpack. Mm-hmm. And they had they would sell lemonade out of their backpacks. Oh, wow! And these were these were try, they tried to market them as more successful and a little more elite than the other ones. So there were there's a variety of interesting things about lemonade. That's just inter- that. Um, and I'm sure it has a very interesting medieval ancient history. All right. of that. Right. So that's just a little taste of. Uh-huh. Everywhere, I guess. <laughs> I feel like we went all around the globe in know, that discussion. Right? So, August 20th is National Lemonade Day. It's a couple months away, but keep marking on your calendar. Yep, make sure to plan your trip to Egypt or <laughs> India. Well, thank you. Or to New York where Edward Bach started his lemonade stand. And speaking of national days, as we end our podcast every time with future festivities, this is for the week of July 8th. July 8th is National Blueberry Day. July 9th is National Sugar Cookie Day. That's something. Yep. July 10th is Clara Hue Day. You guys know what Clara Hue is? It's a type of poem. Four line. Poem? Poem. A four line biographical poem. Well, that's interesting. Yep. July 11th is Cheer Up the Lonely Day. July 11th, Different Colored Eyes Day. That is so fun. I don't know if it's different colored eyes on the same person or different colored eyes. Across. Oh, I, I assume they were on the same person. You're right. They could just be different colored eyes. Right. Blue just, eyes, green eyes, brown eyes. Yeah. yeah. Friday the 13th. Or, I'm sorry. July 13th is Friday the 13th. Day. <laughs> July 14th is Bastille Day. As always, you can follow us on social media. For Twitter, it's at holiday underscore moons. On Instagram... It's at Holiday Moons. On Facebook, you can find a Facebook page and our group by searching Holiday Moons, all one word on Facebook. And you can reach out to us at any time at holidaymoons at gmail.com. 
So for Randy, Sydney, Cole, and Beth, happy, happy summer! summer.